Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and then 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 22. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgments before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. And then from First John. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. This is God's word. Good morning. Uh, It's good to see so many of you this morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, And we continue this morning in a series uh, that has taken us through the summer. We've been talking about Christianity being able to uniquely prepare us to weather the storms of life, both what Paul in 2 Corinthians 7 calls the fightings within and the fears without. So for the first part of the summer, we talked about some external pressures and afflictions and temptations and sufferings that we come in contact with, but as we've turned towards the end of the summer and as school approaches, we've begun to talk about, for some of us, the most profound things we deal with are things that are happening inside of us, the internal storms uh, that we live with. And this morning, uh, we come to the topic of shame or a guilty conscience or what I'm going to call a condemning heart from First John three nineteen, that passage there, if our hearts condemn us, John says. And so what I'm going to call a condemning heart, okay? Because here's the thing, whenever something bad starts to happen to you, whenever your circumstances get out of whack or seem to turn against you, the thing that can uh, disable you more than anything else is if you begin to think inside, oh, you know what, I deserve this, oh, I've done something wrong, oh, God must hate me. You know, because all those things are a function of a heart that's condemning. And so if your heart is at, is at work to condemn you, and then your circumstances begin to turn sour, then really it just becomes a nuclear explosion of fear and unsettledness and anxiety in your life. And so we've got to talk about this, this issue of a condemning heart. Because if we're going to weather the storms of life with perseverance, as the scripture calls us to, we have to know how to deal with our hearts that too often condemn us. Now, you should know. And if you know me just a little bit, you know, uh, that long ago when I put this schedule together, I knew we needed to talk about this because this is my struggle. This is me. And now, if you call me out of the blue, or if you send me a short, direct email void of any reassuring warmth that goes something like, I need to schedule a meeting with you as soon as possible, please. Okay? If you do that to me, I'm going to assume you're mad at me. You just need to know this. So, a good friend, a good friend not long ago sent me a text 
that, that he needed to have a meeting, and, but he, he's a good friend. And so it, it, the text said, it started, I'm not leaving the church, I'm not mad, but I need to come and talk to you about a few things. Okay, see, that works for me. Because I'm the person who's cruising down the road, and uh, if I happen to look up into the rearview mirror and see a police car behind me, even if I've done nothing wrong, I just know that I'm about to get pulled over for something. Okay, my heart is constantly condemning me. Uh, but, but I think it's true of all of us. It's true of you too. It's a universal condition. Nobody's off the hook. But it's more true of some of us than others like me. So if you're like me, uh, and, and, I, and I really believe this, if you're like me, it may be, and it's probably, that you're more, more prone towards introversion or at least introspection as a way of life. Uh, there's been a number of studies shown that, that show that children... Don't, don't all feel the same, and you probably, if you have many children in your family, you've experienced this. Children don't all feel the same amount of guilt and regret when they make mistakes. There are some children that are harder on themselves than others. They feel more guilt. They take it harder. They, they, they really wear it more. And the, these studies have linked to this experience of excessive guilt and regret with what psychologists call high sensitivity, uh, which is another name for introversion. So the more, more you live internally, the more you... Uh, you, you rely on internal stimulation, you're, you're prone to be too much in your head, this is probably you as well. And so, let me just say, as a person who struggles along these lines, I can say, it's easy to get frustrated with people like me. I know. I know because I feel the frustration from some of you quite often. It's easy. People with condemning hearts can be too sensitive or too serious. Uh, we can get our feelings hurt too easily. We can apologize too much. We can be indecisive. Because we're so scared to death of making the wrong decision. Uh, we can't shut our minds off. And too often we're not very much fun. I, I, people like what I'm describing can be exhausting. Because it can feel like they're constantly struggling. And you know why it can feel like they're constantly struggling? Because they are. It's just in here. And it's easy to get aggravated, but we shouldn't. Okay? We shouldn't. Because people like this... The lesson we need to learn is that they're the most spiritually sensitive among us. Okay, I know that's self-serving. <laughs> but it really is true. Okay, best case scenario. Best case scenario, they're the most spiritually sensitive among us. Or they're just neurotic, one or the other, okay? It can go either way. So we're hoping for the other. As an example, take Martin Luther. The, the, the superstitious nature of medieval Christianity and his own hyperactive conscience really um, combined to Luther lived before his gospel discovery just absolutely terrified. He was just terrorized all the time. He used a German word, which is fun to say. Uh, it's Anfechtung, I think is how you, you know. I don't have a German accent, but it would be something like that. And that word means, uh, it doesn't have an English equivalent, but it means something like an assault. Luther was being constantly assaulted by a condemning heart so that he had no inner quiet and peace. No matter what he did, he couldn't, he could not reassure his heart that it was going to be okay. No matter how hard he tried, he, he couldn't quiet his conscience. And it was so bad that literally he suffered from insomnia and deep depression and disabling physical ailments because it was so real to him. But it also was the very reality that birthed the Protestant Reformation. Okay, but too often, what happens is, is a condemning heart like this makes you too timid, you're too unsure of yourself, you're too much afraid, you're too tormented by the things going on inside of you, like Luther, that what happens uh, is it becomes a, a spiritual liability. It creates paralysis. It, 
it makes you selfish. It makes you always too thinking about your, too in much, much in your head, you know, thinking about yourself, too much looking in, not enough looking out at the other people, too easy to shut down when things go hard. And life really is just a series of things going hard. And so we need to really, really deal with this subject, okay? And I want to do that by looking at these two passages from 1 Corinthians 4 and then also from uh, John, 1 John 3. And I want to ask these three questions about a condemning heart. First, what is it? Uh, what does the Scripture mean by a heart that condemns? And, and where does it come from? But secondly, what I want you to see is uh, once we know what it is, I want us to also ask, well, how do we usually deal with it? And, and, the, and the way we usually deal with it is very unsuccessful. So how do we usually and unsuccessfully deal with a condemning heart, but thirdly, I think there's hope for us in how we really can be free, how we really can seek to overcome this condition that destroys so many of us, okay? So what is a condemning heart? Where does it come from? How do we usually deal unsuccessfully with it, but how can we be free uh, to live uh, in power and confidence before God? So let's just start first. What is this condemning heart? Where does it come from? And I want to try to answer the question the way the Bible would. Uh, not by giving you a dictionary definition, but rather with a story, with an image or metaphor, and with an illustration. Those three things. And we're going to just use all three of those to define what I mean by condemning heart. So let's start with the story. And the story is not in the text particularly, although it is in the Bible. It's at the very beginning of the Bible. It's the story of the beginnings of humanity. Uh, in the beginning chapters of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, God tells the story of creation. And at the end of chapter 2 there in Genesis, there's a remarkable statement about the first man and the first woman that are created and God puts in the garden. Genesis 2.25, Moses says that the man and the woman were both naked and were not ashamed. They were naked and they were not ashamed. Now, I've said before that the hardest I've ever worked out in my life was the six months before my wedding because I knew that nakedness was coming. And the thought was absolutely terrifying to me. And in many ways it still is. I've been, uh, you know, I've never been naked and not self-conscious in my whole life. Listen, I figured out the other day that I put off going to the barber as long as I can because it horrifies me to have to stare at myself in the mirror for 30 minutes while he cuts my hair. Okay, I've I've never experienced nakedness without being self-conscious. But the man and the woman were naked and they had no shame. Do you know what that means? It means that they were naked and they didn't know they were naked. Think about that for just a minute. That's deep, okay? Just think about that. They were naked and they didn't know they were naked. It's a wonderful piece of psychology. It means that they were so whole, they were so right, they didn't even know they were right. They didn't think about it. They weren't aware of their nakedness. They weren't naked, they just were. But then they sinned against the Lord as the story goes, by eating the fruit that he had forbidden them to eat. And the Bible says, verse 7 of chapter 3, that at that moment their eyes were open and they saw that they were naked and they felt shame. They sewed fig leaves together to try to cover their nakedness. Why? Because they were ashamed. They were full of regret and embarrassment. And when that didn't work, we're told they dove into the bushes to hide. Why? Because they had become self-conscious. Eve suddenly didn't like the idea of Adam seeing her nakedness. And the story is not meant to tell us about something that happened a long time ago. It's a story about all of us. It's not just history. 
It's psychology. It really is. And it's a, it's a wonderful piece of psychology. Uh, that At the core, we are naked with no bush to dive behind, and it's a terrifying experience for all of us. That our greatest fear, our absolutely greatest fear, the thing that scares us to death more than anything else, is the idea of being exposed, to be stripped of the righteousness that we're trying to clothe ourselves with, to be known all the way to the bottom of who we are. It's why we've all, and it's that time of year, isn't it? We've all had the nightmare about showing up at the first day of school, and you look down and you realize, I'm in my underwear, right? And don't look at me like you've not had the dream. Everybody's had the dream. Everybody. And it's always the first day of school. You know why? Because what's the first day of school about? The first day of school is about making an impression. Everything has been carefully chosen to form a certain idea in other people of the kind of person that you are, or at least the kind of person that you want them to think you are. And what happens in the dream is it's all stripped away, and there's nowhere for you to hide, and it's absolutely terrifying. And that's the the spiritual truth that explains the condemning heart. That I'm not okay. I, I know deep down something's wrong with me. I'm not whole. I'm not, I'm not all that I was created to be. And that's what the story teaches. But secondly, not only a story, there's also an image. And the image comes from the passage in 1 Corinthians 4. Paul is writing to these Corinthian believers to defend his apostleship and his authority. And he does a really interesting thing. He is facing criticism from these Corinthians over the way he's handled a situation in the church. But what's fascinating is, is he, he doesn't run away from it. He instead, you, you see this in, in these verses here in chapter, chapter 4, he, he puts himself on trial. He says, okay, you want to talk about what I've done wrong? Let's go to court. And he, and he basically goes and he says, with me it's a very small thing, verse 3, that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is God who judges me. Now, Tim Keller has preached a sermon that became a little ebook called Blessed Self-Forgetfulness. That's one of the most transformative, life-changing things I've ever read. And here's how he explains what Paul's saying in these verses, the way our identity works. He says it like this. He says, every single day you're in the courtroom. You're on trial. There's the prosecution and there's the defense. And everything you do, you're stamping evidence for the prosecution. You're stamping evidence for the defense. And some days you feel like you're winning the trial. Some days you feel like you're losing the trial. But no matter what, every single day, every day you're on trial. And so there's a deeper spiritual truth that explains a condemning heart. Not only that I have the sense that I'm, I'm not okay, that I'm not whole, that I'm not all that I've been created to be, but there's a deeper spiritual truth that explains it. It's that I'm guilty, that I'm a lawbreaker, that I deserve to be punished, which is why when I look up and I see the policeman behind me, I'm just absolutely convinced he's about to pull me over. But lastly, okay, so we see there's a story and then there's the image here. But lastly, the illustration, and I, just, just to kind of poke fun and, and to get at it in another way so that you understand exactly what I mean. One of the more clever campaign ads that I think, anyway, of the last few years was the, the commercials from Southwest Airlines, Want to Get Away. Do you remember these commercials? Uh, and so a number of them ran, and they're absolutely hilarious, but they're so, uh, there's so much humanity in them. A couple of my favorites, my the one that is my favorite is that there's this office setting and a woman sits down at a table with her coworker and he's sitting next to her and he says, you know, she hears him say, maybe this isn't the best time to say this, but, but I think you're beautiful. And she obviously <laughs> is very flattered and she kind of shyly displi- replies, well, you know, I've always been attracted to you too, Paul. 
And he looks at her with this look of surprise and confusion and then grabs the mic on the earpiece he's wearing. And he says, wait a minute, babe, excuse me. And he turns to her. <laughs> right? And then it comes, want to get away? <laughs> right? The lady's absolutely mortified. She's embarrassed. She's caught. There's nowhere to hide. Uh, my, just for fun, my other favorite is two guys are playing. And this almost happened at my house with my nephews the other day. So this is pretty funny. Uh, two guys are playing base- the baseball video game, like with a Wii or whatever, and the first guy stands up and he says something like, you know, with the controller, with the controller, the character will mimic your exact motions, right? And so they're figuring out the Wii, and so the guy swings the bat, and the other guy's the one that's pitching. He says, sweet, and, and so his friend says, now throw a pitch to me just like you're in, in, outside. And so the guy takes the controller, whoom, and chucks it at the television. <laughs> Everything smashes, falls down. The whole entertainment center's broken into a million pieces, falls off the wall. Want to get away? And the reason those Southwest commercials were so successful is because every single one of us in the room knows what that feels like. Even if we've never done something as foolish as clicking on the sick of your job, exciting new job offer email that spreads a virus through the entire office, you know, we know, we know we're caught. We're caught. There's no way to cover up, there's no excuse. Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Want to get away? Our hearts condemn us. And the reason we feel this way, the reason we go into the courtroom every day and go on trial, the spiritual reason that explains it, according to the prophet Zephaniah, which which Joe read for us just a little while ago in Zephaniah 3.15, is that there are judgments that are against us. There, there literally are judgments that are against us. If you owe somebody a debt and, and they take you to court, the judge can, can issue a judgment, which is a legal rendering that no matter what happens, the debt must be repaid. We owe God a debt. He created us. And we owe him every breath, but we've rebelled against him, the Bible says. We have taken our love and our loyalty and we've given it to lesser things. All have sinned. And God has called in the debt. And so when John writes about our hearts condemning us, He means that it's not just an objective fact. It's something that we experience, we feel, and we know it on the inside. We don't have to to work hard to feel guilty. We have to work hard not to. Because the spiritual reality of our life is we are guilty. We are lawbreakers before a holy God who's called in the debt. Now, it's interesting. This is actually a really good thing. It used to be that being terrorized by God like this was seen as a necessary part of genuine spiritual experience. Not anymore. Everything about modern Christianity now, the music and the liturgies and the architecture, all of it is designed to de-terrorize people and make them feel comfortable. But the teaching of the Bible is that genuine spiritual experience doesn't begin with being comfortable. It begins with Luther's Anfechtung. It begins with inner disquiet, with a troubled conscience with a condemning heart but of course you don't stay there you don't you right you don't you don't stay there you do begin there but something has shifted too long ago not too long ago people experienced genuine soul anguish over the debt they knew they owed to god that was the great um the great fear of their life the great um burden of their life was that they knew they owed god a debt it was the source of the crisis their crisis of faith but today what's happened it's so upside down that the source of Most spiritual anguish by people today is that they feel that God owes them something and he's not coming through. 
right? It's completely backwards. And that's the spiritual crisis of our day. Not a crippling sense of guilt and condemnation. Not, a, not that, but a crippling entitlement and false security. And that's not progress. It's not an indication of spiritual enlightenment. There are judgments against us, the scripture says. We are guilty and we know it. No matter what bush we may try to dive behind, we have nowhere to hide. So John Calvin said, and I, and I, and I would just amen and say this is absolutely true, that even the boldest despisers of God, the boldest despiser of God, is of all men the most startled at the rustle of every falling leaf. Our hearts condemn us. If we would just stop long enough to listen, we would hear it. So what do you do? What do you do? If this is you, to whatever degree this, you would say this is true of your life, what do you do? When your heart condemns you, what do you do? Well, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul describes the way that we compensate for our feelings of inadequacy and condemnation. Look there in verse 6. This is really great. He says that we puff up. You see that? I've applied all of these things that none of you may be puffed up. It's a word that describes pride, but it's found only here in 1 Corinthians. Uh, nowhere else. It literally means to blow up or to become inflated or swollen. And I got to thinking about how to illustrate this. And you know there's a certain number of animals in uh, the natural world who use a similar strategy as a defense mechanism. So these animals are either small or they lack any real way of defending themselves. And so what they do when there's a predator and they're threatened is they... They puff out their feathers or they inflate their bodies so that they look larger than they actually are to ward off the predator that's coming. That way they can, it's an intimidation tactic, a self-defense mechanism. And that's the metaphor Paul's using. He says that the way we deal with a condemning heart is to become puffed up with pride. So when you post only the pretty pictures on Facebook and not the ugly ones, you're puffing yourself up. Right? It's just one example. Of, it's a boast. These are boasts, Paul says. And a boast is trying to feel better about yourself by presenting evidence that is contrary to the way your condemning heart feels. Or, if you can't do that, which is sometimes you can't, you begin to point out in other people the things that make you feel superior to them. So bragging and boasting, criticizing other people, all of these things, they're defense mechanisms. People who do this are trying to blow themselves up because they feel really small. I mean, you see it everywhere. You see it. You see it. You saw it. Uh, and I won't mention names because I don't want to go there. But you saw it in the um, the Republican um, candidate um, thing the other night on TV. The ones that were really trying to blow themselves up. Or you know, if you saw the the, the weigh-in of the Ronda Rousey fight a few weeks ago, the girl who's the challenger of the weigh-in, pointing her finger at her and telling her, "I'm gonna make you cry," and bouncing around up there, you know. And 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 I I saw that and I thought, oh Lord, she's in big trouble. Right, puffing herself up, and there's the champ, calm and collected, and I knew, I knew that that girl was in big trouble, and it took about 26 seconds. See, the more insecure, the more insecure you are, the more uh, you tend to puff yourself up. And here's the problem, if you're puffed up, if you're overinflated, then when failure or criticism or some hard thing comes into your life, it's literally like letting the air out of a balloon. It completely destroys you. The problem with being overinflated is that you're constantly in danger of being deflated. And so what happens is it becomes a roller coaster ride of highs and lows, pride that gives way to self-loathing and back to pride, feeling good about yourself and then feeling bad about yourself and then feeling good about yourself again and then 
bad about yourself again, but always obsessively thinking about yourself and how you're being perceived by others instead of not thinking about yourself at all. Contrast this. Contrast this with the way Paul characterizes his own inner life in these verses. It's, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, it really is. What he says here is, is truly remarkable. Verse 4, he says, with me, verse 3 and 4, with me is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, he says. Do you see that? I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So on the one hand, Paul says, I don't allow myself to be judged by other people. I don't care. I don't, I don't care what they think of me. My identity and my, my self-regard isn't tied to the verdicts other people render of me. Their evaluation of me does not become my evaluation of me. Now walk into any counseling office and talk like that, and you're likely to get a pat on the back because what matters most, according to popular psychology, is not what other people think of you, but you've got you to believe in yourself. You've got to think good thoughts about yourself. Your identity comes from what you think of you. And so we try to solve low self-esteem with high self-esteem, which a person has to generate for themselves, like the old Stuart Smalley thing in, in uh, you know, Saturday Night Live. You're smart enough, you're good enough, and gosh darn it, people like you. And you keep saying that over and over again to yourself in front of the mirror until you start to believe it. But that's not what Paul's doing at all. That's not at all what Paul says. Look, because he goes on to say, I don't allow myself to be judged by other people, but look at the next line. I don't even judge myself. In other words, I have a low opinion of other people's opinions of me, but I also have a low opinion of my opinion of me. This is completely off the map of our normal experience. Paul is, isn't countering a condemning heart by reassuring himself that he's a good person. Look what he says. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but, that, but, but I'm not thereby acquitted. Verse 4. Okay, this is not self-confidence. Paul's saying they're, they're, they're wrong about me. He's not saying, you know, those people that said that, they're, if they, they're wrong about me, I really am a good person. No, he's saying, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't mean I'm innocent. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there are things that I'm not even aware of, that I'm guilty of, but I'm not bothered by that. So Keller, in the sermon I talked about, and this was absolutely transformative for me, he said what Paul's doing here is absolutely unique. Paul is completely honest about his sins. In fact, he says, you know, he, instead of saying, you know, you're wrong about me, I haven't done the thing that you've, you know, you've, um, you've accused me of, Paul would be the person who would say, you know, whatever, whatever you would accuse me of, you don't know a fraction of what is really true of what's going on in my heart. I am way, way worse than you could ever think that I would be, and I'm the only one that knows it, because I'm the only one who lives in here. And so Keller says that he's completely honest. But what he does is, is in his honesty about his sin, he doesn't connect. He doesn't connect his sins to his identity. He doesn't allow himself to be evaluated by others. And he doesn't evaluate himself either. He doesn't look at a sin and say, you know, see, look, man, I'm a really bad person. And he doesn't look and see something good that he's done and say, you know what, I'm a pretty good person. There are sins and there are accomplishments. There are positives and there are negatives, but they don't register at all because Paul's not puffed up. He's filled up. Okay, so let's finish with just asking, so how? How did this happen in Paul's life? Because we need to know that, because we need, we need a similar experience to the one he has here. And the answer, the answer about how this happened in Paul's life is that he's out of the courtroom. That's the difference, see? Paul, for Paul, the trial is over. And see, for the rest of us, the trial goes on because we live as if our performance leads to the verdict. That's the way trials work. The evidence is presented. 
Once the evidence is presented, then the verdict comes. And so you do good, and you're a good person. If you mess up, then you're a bad person. And in all the major religions of the world, this is the way it works. Even among irreligious people, your performance leads to the verdict. Obey my law, do all the things that I have told you to do, make all the sacrifices, and I will bless you, the God says. So if I'm being blessed, if things are going well in my life, then I must be doing it right. And if things begin to fall apart or go poorly or whatever it might be, then I must be doing something wrong. Or, this is, this is, this is my family, if we make the right decision, uh, then, then I'll get the result I want. But if I make a bad decision, I won't. But what matters is my decision. Right? It's why I'm such a terrible decision maker. But Paul is out of the courtroom. He's completely out of the courtroom because Christianity is different. It's something entirely different. It isn't religion, it's gospel. And in the gospel, it reverses this. It is that the verdict comes first, and then it leads to the performance. The verdict is in. And that's what that passage in Zephaniah is all about. It's why I included it there. Sing aloud, the prophet says. Rejoice and exult with all of your hearts. Listen to this. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Fear not. The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice or exult over you with loud singing. God has taken away the judgments against you. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You with me? Does that sink in? See, that's what's got to happen. It's got to sink in. And I don't know if it's sinking in if I can't tell from the way your faces look. And quite honestly, the way your faces look, I'm not, I'm not, not too confident at the moment. Is that sinking in? Thank you, thank you Carter. But I know, yeah, I mean, but does that sink in? God has taken away the judgments against you. He has. There's no condemnation for those who are are in Christ Jesus. He sings over you. The way a mother or father sings a lullaby over their child at bedtime or the way a lover serenades his beloved. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, the verdict is in. This is what God's done for you. This is how God feels about you. And that's how you reassure your heart before him. Uh, That's why you can live with confidence instead of a condemning heart. And here, uh, Keller is at his absolute best. He says this. This is the way he puts it. He says, Paul is out of the courtroom and out of the trial because Jesus Christ went to trial. Because he went into the courtroom. Why? He went as our substitute. He took the condemnation we deserved. He took the trial that we deserve so that we don't have to stand trial anymore. See, the solution for Martin Luther's soul anguish was the realization that on the cross, Jesus had become his sins and had experienced the same anguish. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was assaulted. So much so that the pressure and the anxiety was so great that that blood began to leak through his pores. He was completely abandoned by his father. For the one who had been adored by angels for all eternity, there was no song. And so Luther wrote, he... This was later in his life when his heart had been healed, the way I hope ours might be beginning even this morning. He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly, but looks only on a curtain as if a dark cloud has been drawn across his face. See, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, well, if you're here and you're not a Christian, then this promise isn't for you because it's a promise only for those who shelter themselves under the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who live the life we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. But if your faith is in Jesus Christ, 
then I can say to you, this is the great part of what I, about what I get to do. If your faith is in Jesus, I can say to you this morning, he has taken away the judgments against you by going to the cross for your sin. There are judgments against you. That's true. And that's what your heart feels. Your heart knows there are judgments against you. And, and so to try to, to deny that there are judgments against you doesn't work. You have to be honest about that. Yes, there are judgments against me. But don't, look, don't you know, forget the second part of that. Of course there are judgments against me, but they've been taken away. God does not condemn you. The verdict is in. And so let me apply this just in a couple ways really quickly. And the first way I would apply it to you is just to help you, especially those of you who may be new to church, to say this, that a Christian isn't a person who goes to church and is a good person. A Christian is a person who comes to an understanding that their standing with God has nothing to do whatsoever with their performance, good or bad. That's what makes somebody a Christian. A Christian, you're not, a Christian is a person who's out of the courtroom. That's a Christian. But the second thing is, is a Christian is a person who isn't puffed up, but filled up. And let me just try to describe that to you in, in a couple of ways. In other words, to be puffed up, to be filled up rather than puffed up, means that you're not devastated by criticism, but you're not dismissive of it either. You're not needing to be honored but you're, for your accomplishments, but you're not afraid of it either. Christianity can make you a person who, when you look in the mirror, you don't admire what you see there, but you don't cringe either. You don't have to hit a home run. All the sports guys will, will, will like this. You can just do your job and move the runner at second over to third so that somebody else can knock him in. Do you live your whole life like that? I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine living with that kind of inner strength and confidence and just, just a sense of ease, being filled up by the love of God for you in Christ Jesus, not being puffed up that you might somehow rob other people of their admiration? See, a condemning heart is like an active hurricane season. By the time you've recovered from the last storm, there's already one on its way, and you've got to start preparing for that. But when the storms are raging like that on the inside, it's hard to remain steadfast when life storms come. So the good news of the gospel for us this morning is that no matter who you are, no matter what your past record is, if you come to Jesus in faith, the trial is over. He accepts you. He loves you. You can be absolutely certain of his love and protection and care. He's a father who sings over you a love song. That's the truth of our lives. And those are the resources that we need to go out and face life's storm. Uh, I want to close with the lines of this old hymn, uh, which uh, can really uh, just wrap around our hearts, I hope, this morning, where the hymn writer says, Well might the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all. And thousands more. But Jehovah knoweth none. That's the hope. And so let's pray together this morning, can't we? Father, even now, as Terry and the band sing over us, uh, in their song, and in the song that we offer to you, would we um, have ears to hear the song that you sing in love over us? Uh, to, to quiet us, that's the promise of Zephaniah there, that you can quiet us. We're going to talk about that next week a little bit. Quiet us by your love. In other words, that we can be so thoroughly, we, we, in fact, we are so thoroughly loved by you. We are so thoroughly provided for and cared for and protected by you that, that we have no reason to be afraid. We have no reason 
to be anxious about anything in our life, that we can be still because you are the good shepherd that the psalmist talks about who leads us beside still waters and causes us to lie down. And so would you do that? Would you conquer our hearts with that great work in these moments? Would you calm us? Lord Jesus, the way you spoke to the sea, peace. Would you speak peace to our hearts so that we might be healed of this crippling thing, this condemning heart, so that we might have all the strength and the energy and the confidence, being confident or reassuring our hearts before you uh, so that we might carry on through life's storms full of faith and good works that honor and glorify you. That's our hope and prayer, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I know that many of you have come this morning from places of great trial. There's been some storms that have hit some of your lives this past week uh, that have been, uh, that have threatened to just, you know, split your ship into a million pieces. Uh, the good news of the gospel is no matter what's happening in our lives, the storm that would, that, would, that would go off inside of, does this mean he doesn't love me, is settled once and for all at the cross. And that's the promise of this benediction, see, that again, yet again, before he sends us out, he promises uh, he pledges his love and his commitment to us. And so that's what we do in this benediction. Now, when you see people in the congregation, when I do the benediction, go like this. It's because the religious impulse would be to load our hands up with all the things that we could say, here, see, look, look at what I've done. Isn't this good? And what the Bible says is that if we come to him like that with our hands full of all of the things we think will get his blessing, that he would say to us, I never knew you. But if we would come to him, nothing in our hands we bring. He says, man, I like that. And that's, that's what he promises to bless. It's the very act of saying, I have nothing. And so that's why we put our hands out like this, as if to say, I need what you're going to give. I have nothing except the promise that you're about to make to me. And that really is what's going on in this benediction. Uh, so again, be assured, no matter what's happening, of his great love for you uh, in these words. Receive them, and, and may your heart rest in them. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.